On our earth, before writing was invented, before the printing press was invented, poetry flourished. That's why we know that poetry is like bread. It should be shared by all, by scholars and by peasants, by all our vast, incredible, extraordinary family of humanity. That was Pablo Neruda. I'm Bob Holman, and this is the Poetry is Bread podcast, where poetry challenges us, makes us think, and with imagination and courage, changes the world. Visiting with us today, the wonderful poet Dante Michaud, the author of Amorous Shepherd from Sheep Meadows Press and Circus, which won the Four Quartets Prize from the Poetry Society of America and the T.S. Eliot Foundation. His other honors include the 2020 Ambit Poetry Prize and fellowships from Cave Canem and the New York Times Foundation. Recently, he became the director of programs for Cave Canem, and he's just informed us that he's living these days up in the Berkshires at the Amy Clampett Residency. Welcome, Thank you Dante so much, Michaud. Bob. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. So, um, listen, we start off this way with most of the guests here. What is it? How did poetry come to you? What poem mm. or poet was it that uh, made you think that poetry was more than a pastime? That's a good question. I mean, poetry came to me before I discovered that poet, but I'd have to say something really that probably many people say, uh, which is um, Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman. That's really struck me when I was in high school. It started um, uh, a love of reading poetry. And then the year after I encountered that, I met the great Sonia Sanchez. She came local and gave a reading at the public library. Where were you at this point? I was in high school. I was in high school in in Princeton, New Jersey. Okay. And uh, she came, she had just published a book called uh, Wounded in the House of a Friend. And she read at the public library and she read a poem that really just uh, changed my whole uh, outlook. Uh, At the time, the poem, and in the book, the poem is entitled Improvisation 17, but She has since retitled the poem and it's called, she calls it her middle passage poem. Mm. She read this poem about the voyage uh, across the Atlantic. And she was the first person I ever met who was a poet, who was a, you know, tried and true poet and, and demonstrated that it was something you could do with your life. I mean, I knew all the other poets I knew were dead when I read in school. A living poet right in front of you. And from her was spewing a a living poem. And Sonia, nobody can get a poem across like she can. Nobody can get a poem across like she can. So, yeah, I was just talking to her the other day. um, And she, all that time, she'd just been in Philadelphia, which isn't that far from Princeton, and had no idea. Yeah. But yeah, that poem, uh, if you if you get a chance to look back through your through your books, it's in Wounded in the House of a Friend, and it's called imp- in that book it's called Improvisation. It's a very powerful poem, probably probably the most powerful poem about the Middle Passage that I've ever read. It's wow. certainly in league with with uh, Hayden's Middle Passage poem, um, and and um, Elizabeth Alexander's Amistad. But this one is just yeah. Yeah. it's yeah. just the voices of yeah, the, yeah. of the people. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow! Wow! Well, yeah, you know, that's it, it. That's no, it's not that familiar a story, Walt Whitman and Sonia Sanchez, <laughs> but uh, that's, we'll, we can go along with that couple. Um, but there's not every poet who comes here who is has the name of a poet for his name. How did that come about? Well, that's an interesting story. Uh, most people think that I uh, 
changed my name so that I could sound more poetic. But in fact, uh, when I was 13, I uh, had read the Divine Comedy in school and came home one weekend and uh, said to my mother with the book, waving my copy in front of her saying, why didn't you tell me I'm named after the most famous poet of all times? And uh, by that time at, at age 13, I'd probably written five poems, let's say. And uh, she looked at me as my mother is wont to do and said, boy, what are you talking about? And I said, look, here's the, she said, I don't know who that is or what that book is about, but I named you after my favorite football player. <laughs> yeah. And his name, uh, he's, he's known to the world as Dan Pastorini. But Dan, she discovered, was short for Dante. And she loved that sound of that name. And that's how I got my name. Great. The, uh, yeah, this Dante and shoulder pads, right? <laughs> Is that a Philadelphia Eagles player? I have no idea because I, I know so. nothing about football. Oh. But, and he's long since retired. But when I looked him up, a few years ago, he was in like a senior division of race car drivers. So he left football and then started doing. Keeping with the athletics. Yeah. Nothing like a, a race car athletics, you know? I wish I could be a better namesake because I don't keep up with the Honey, athletics. you've got a namesake. <laughs> you can't get rid of the name. I'm sorry about that. So right now you're working on a series of poems called Pelham. Mm. Um, where is Pelham? The Pelham of my poem is is in southern Georgia. Yeah, it's a small town outside of another. It's it's not even a town. It's, it's a small place outside of the town of Camilla. Um, and it happens to be uh, where my, where the maternal side of my family comes from. So a lot of this poem is, it seems to be about your great grandmother. My great grandmother, uh, my maternal great grandmother is the protagonist of the poem. I never knew her. She died in 1962. But um, I know lots of stories about her through my maternal grandmother, who also has passed away. She died in uh, 2012. But uh, when I was 14, I sat down with my grandmother and I just wrote down her memories from her own life of being a girl in the town of Pelham. And um, I kept, she kept a copy of, of those things. I typed them up on a typewriter and uh, used it as part of a project for school when I was 14, my world history class. Um, and uh, my grandmother kept a copy of this project that I did, which I got an A on. Yay. And uh, she, she, when she passed away uh, and I was going through her things, there it was. And I thought I wanted to honor um, her life uh, by, you know, building out these, these memories that she had shared with me. Um, and I'm sure she had shared them with other people in the family, but I'm the only writer, so I wrote them down. So I have these wonderful snippets in my 14-year-old typescript of my grandmother just sort of telling me stories. And they become, uh, the way the, the, the way I envision the sequence is um, every other, um, every other canto of the poem is a pastoral memory from my grandmother. And um, it's counterbalanced by uh, this fictional narrative where my great-grandmother, who is alive in 1940, is able to communicate with me, who's alive in 2022. And we can communicate with each other, but um, no one on her side of the time can hear me communicating to her. Only she can hear me. So it's like a voice from 
somewhere else. Wow. Yeah. So um, why don't you read us a section, one of your cantos, as sure. you say, and, uh, t- and tell, is this a, c- a canto that's the, uh, that is her voice, her memory? Or? No, the cantos that I'm reading today are the pastoral memories okay. of my grandmother, okay. not the voice of my great-grandmother. Okay. Well. So I'll start with the first one. Breeze filled with the sweet smell of big women on the porch, shelling peas, connecting gossip from their houses, miles apart, across the highway from a field of cotton, in their gingham wrappers and calico aprons, high on the small joys of their hard lives, pulling back the string of fat pods, one after the other, emptying true harvest into a single bowl and discarding the fruit in a bucket. Behind the house, corn as high as the roof, a few pens for subsistence livestock, chickens scattered in the manner of their food, and the younger children playing marbles in the dirt, backdrop of a family's labor and reward. Many children, in fact. Twelve boys, five grown, though one dead, six in the field with their father, two girls, one grown, fourteen in all, little girl holds the baby. The women linger in the work that is easy before the men return, expecting a full meal, the fuel of an afternoon's hoe cake spent, One of the twins hollers, Papa's coming, and neighbor ladies say so longs, as Christians never say goodbye. This is the common abundance of the sharecropper. So this is a poem of memory, and there is such a, somehow it it feels like you're walking through a veil into another time brought there by the rhythms and vocabulary that you use. I can't, I really can't say I've ever read anything quite like it. It's, 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 it's as if, if you're walking into some kind of sepia photograph or something mm-hmm. of the, of the old days, you know, you really see and sense this, um, you know, th- this picture, mm-hmm. um, this almost like a tableau vivant, you know. That's how I experienced the stories from my grandmother. My grandmother and I were very, very close. Very, she was the love of my life. And, you know, um, I spent a great deal of time with her as a young person. And I really am saturated with not only her stories and many of her memories, but also um, her way of being in the world, uh, the way uh, one carries oneself. And she taught me, I said, I think in in the eulogy at her funeral, anything that I can do well, really, and I'm, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, anything that I can do well, I learned from my grandmother, including writing, because though she didn't teach me poetry, she put a pen in my hand before I started school and taught me how to write my name in oh, cursive. Wow. So really? before I oh, could wow. print letters, I could write my name in cursive, and that's all due to her. So I, I really feel as if when I think about her and when I think about the stories that she told me, um, maybe because she told me when I was so young, they do feel alive. You know, the people are very much alive and speaking and 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 behaving. And my grandmother was a phenomenal storyteller. She I could so. she could impersonate the voices of her siblings oh, wow. and her parents and you know people who would um, who would visit the farm. Uh, I'm so excited to write uh, the sections. There was a woman 
who, you know, they didn't have radio or television or maybe one person in the town had a radio, but they didn't have a radio and they didn't have a television. And so the way they would entertain themselves besides, you know, children's games and the time that the family spent together, uh, there was a woman who would travel around a sort of itinerant storyteller mm-hmm. and she would tell scary stories. And my grandmother had this memory of uh, being told the story and being so afraid that they hid under all of the handmade quilts that her mother had made. So I'm really excited to write that. Um, my yeah. uncle, my the only surviving child of of that long list of child children that I just the fourteen of children. the fourteen yeah. children. Uh, uh, my uncle is is uh, a, a well established painter and he's ninety years old. So he's the only person left alive who would remember some of this. So I hope to get it all out so he has time to. To read wow, it. Wow. Um, so this woman was like a griot, you know, the, the yeah, she was like the, a griot. Uh, the traveling yeah. storytellers mm-hmm. of Africa, singer, keepers of the oral yeah. tradition. They would feed her a meal. She'd tell a story that and you know, she spent time with the family. Now, did you speak? Were you speaking with her in Pelham? What was I speaking to? My, no, 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 my grandmother. No, no, I grew up in Trent, New Jersey. Right. My grandmother did, emigrated from. Pelham, I guess you could say immigrated from Pelham. She moved to the city uh, in 1953. Uh, and so she had spent her childhood there. She got married very early. My great, my grandfather was in the military. And so they went off to his military postings. And then they ended up in Trent, New Jersey. Um, yeah. Have you ever been to Pelham? I have never been to Pelham, but wow. it's part of this work. Yes, part, of, part of this work I, I is traveling down there. It's yeah, real. Yeah. It's it real. Is a real. It's place. traveling there, mm-hmm. except yeah. through uh, poetry. Why don't you read us another section? Sure. Here? Weeds, but welcomed flora, never a remedy waste. Outside the house, a yard. Outside the yard, pens. Outside the pens, a road. Beyond the road, the field and more field. But the last field gives way to wood. Such wood, it'd be a wonder. Kudzu, cloaking the squat trees gathered like a congregation hiding its worship. Its opening, invisible to the strange eye, reveals a pond's bank, rich with redberry root and sassafras. Enough wealth to ward off ailment, collected with care in the fold of an apron, and the little girl's skirt, so pleased with helping her mother carry back that bounty that would be medicine, to wash gently and bind, to hang from a string hung taut against the back wall of the kitchen, to dry, to separate leaf from stem, to crush leaf in hand, and sprinkle into the water boiling for tea, or mix into a rendered fat for salve. Though there were other cures that had been shared and miscegenated, committed, brought down and burnished through generations, oil and turpentine, sweet gum or stinking gum, camphor, cherry bark or red oak bark for the gut misery. Brilliant listing of remedies that seem, you know, so detailed, accurate, and uh, of that place. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated with the way that y- you keep these words so simple and and uh, often one, most of it, all one syllables and the, yet they knock up against each other like uh, you know like somebody 
shaking a medicine cabinet or something and yeah. all the bottles are going at it. It's all the Anglo-Saxon words. There's no Latinate or, or yeah. French in, in here. It's, you know, it seems to me it's all st- straight ahead. How did you come up with the, uh, with the, all the names? Was that, was that uh, from some, talking? Some, some of the names are from talking. So my grandmother would tell me, yeah. you know, oh, when we were, whenever we got a call, mama would do this or when, it was, um, you know, hot, too hot outside and people were suffering from heat stroke. Mama would do that. And she would list some of the ingredients and some of the ingredients I had to research because I wanted to make sure I was talking about flora that exists in and around Pelham. Um, and kudzu is everywhere, it seems, yeah. there. But um, the simple words were intentional. One, because it it's germane to the vocabulary that would have been used um, by the people who are, you know, wh- whose memories these are. And also, I think there, I can't get away from uh, a more recent influence, and by more recent, I mean maybe the last 15 years or so, um, of Geoffrey Hill. And so those Anglo-Saxon words, uh, and and as you mm-hmm. described, the way they knock up against each other, I think come from really um, spending lots of time inside Jeffrey Hill's poems. And I was I was privileged to meet him towards the end of his life, and um, and and take on the the care of those words that really um, evolve in our own language without the 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 very common influence of Latinate words. Um, right. And so. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's that's uh, purposeful. Yeah, well, it sounds like it. It just sounds like it. It really, uh, you know, makes its purpose. It does its purpose. Yeah, there was a uh, there is a poet uh, from Louisiana named Jarvis DeBerry. He's a poet and journalist. And when I was a much younger writer, I remember him saying, "I made a promise to myself to never write a poem that my grandmother couldn't understand." And I think that that memory of him saying that is also present here to make sure that um, were my grandmother alive or were my great grandmother alive, they could access this text. Definitely. Miscegenated, you use in here mm-hmm. a word that is most commonly used for for uh, the mixing of the races, but mm-hmm. you uh, you take it back to its roots and. Use it. That actually, that's a thundering little section there. The the way you read it, that had been shared and miscegenated, committed, brought down, and burnished. Mm. Boom, 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 boom. You know, in yeah. in there. Um, anything? Does that set set off any 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 thoughts for you? That, I mean, that I'm, movement. That I, movement. I'm talking about. I think that um, something that occurs in my poems. Uh, why I can't explain why, but I am. I do have an allegiance to gravitas, you know, and I I want um, I want readers to look at um, this work of this woman in particular and know that it was serious, that it was mm. life-sustaining for, in, in many cases. Um, and to be the mother of 14 children and a wife of one husband, I'd love to write something about my great-grandfather. Apparently he was a character. You know, she had to be very organized and structured and planful. And that takes, um, that takes a kind of um, stamina 
and uh, robustness that I hope the language reflects. You know, wow. she was out in the Georgia heat collecting yeah. these things and then going home and processing them without any machines. Uh, so oh. that's that's serious work. Committed, brought down, and burnished. It's the brought down, you mm. know, that that's so down home. Mm. You know, but it's those three words together. Can't imagine that happening except with the poet. Exactly. You want to yeah. take a, a stab at another one for us here? Sure. Um, this is the last section um, from Pelham that I'll read. Uh, again, it's it's in the in the the sort of flow of their pastoral lives. One small, sure handful at a time flies the coarser stuff. The little girl makes deft work of feeding chickens the rough sand of corn from a shallow bowl in the crook of her arm. Barefoot, while the ground is still cool, she makes no sound that startles the fowl. No here, chick, 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 chicken, to lure them closer. No running at all when fed well. She learned to keep their meat from turning tough. The hens drift toward the safe food, no fear of competition, and the rooster waits up on the fence to eat right from her hand, strut, strut, the honor of capon at Christmas. Occasionally, she slopped the hogs. Boys' brawn was saved for field work. Potato peels, corn cobs, eggshells, carrot tops, onion skins, apple cores, the stems of collard greens. There was canning to do seemed like all day preparing fruits and vegetables that could not be cut any which way, not only to fit in jars, but so the pantry would look pretty. Her favorite chore by far was making brooms, join her brothers in the field when the sun was hot to cut corn straw and hunt for a stick thick as her wrist and high as her plus half, sweep with the things she made. Wow. So here's a, a, another one of these tab tableau vivants. It's mm -hmm. actual scene of the little girl, your grandmother. My grandmother, yeah. Um, out feeding the chickens. But every step of it, it's almost like they're, you know, there ain't no soundtrack here. You know? <laughs> she's, 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 she, she knows that if she gets them running, that the meat is going to be tough. She's already, she's a scientist. Right, right. <laughs> as well as a, a poet out there, you know, with her, the, the capon being the, the uh, honor of capon at, at, at Christmas time. Um, and then there's the scene down, down in the, in the, in the cellar, down in the, in mm. where you, where you keep the, the, the the jars for through the wintertime or the vegetables that you prepared so perfectly. Not just because that's the way they fit in the jar, but there's an aesthetics mm. involved in it that you point to that I that really never thought before. Yeah. These were some notes that you were keeping back when you were you were in high school when fourteen, yeah, I was a freshman in high school. Oh, for goodness, you know, like you, you seem to have done a lot of work as a poet back when you were a very early age. It is did, true. Did you have a, teachers or anything like that who were helping you, or this is just something natural? Was it your family? What was it? It was uh, really poetry came to me naturally, like a lightning bolt, uh, and I remember the exact day it happened, and I have the text in my twelve-year-old hand. I was in sixth grade. In the sixth grade, uh, my teacher was uh, this wonderful woman who has since passed away. Her name was Joyce Vereen. And she, as we say, and as my grandmother say, took no tea for the fever. She was a very serious woman. 
And um, we had a writing assignment, a prose writing assignment. And all of a sudden, after three or four paragraphs of prose, I started writing in quatrains. I don't know why. I don't know if I, I don't have a memory of having experienced quatrains before, but my prose just turned into a poem. And um, that was the moment that I, I guess I first wrote a poem. And um, she, my teacher, Ms. Vereen, looked at it and... <laughs> Of course, she chastised me and she said, well, this wasn't the assignment, but it's good writing. So I'll accept it. And, um, and, and after that, I started writing things that were in lines. And, but I really wasn't reading any poetry. I mean, I mean, of course, I knew nursery rhymes as a kid, but I didn't have books of poetry in my house. My teacher who saw that didn't steer me toward any text. Um, it was really once I got to eighth grade, um, and I was in a different school. And I remember we had part of the school year, we did poetry and there was an anthology. I think it was called The Sound and the Sense. And yep. the, I know on, that book. And the yes. only poem I remember from that, which I have actually written another poem in conversation with in my first book, Amorous Shepherd, is a poem by Sharon Olds called The, Son the Connoisseurs of Slugs. <laughs> and of course, if you remember that poem or you know what it's about, it's about a, a man getting an erection or a, a, a younger woman seeing an erection for the first time. And of course, we are all in eighth grade. You know, we're 13 years old. So imagine reading that poem and being 13 years old and <laughs> being totally um, abashed. And um, and and I was writing poems at the same time. Uh, and then I met Sonia. And after that, I really started writing poems seriously. You know, yeah. she was brilliant. She called, I wrote a poem, which I thought was good at the time. And I sent it to her. I found out she was teaching at Temple University right. and I sent it to her. And Sonia is probably the most gracious person. She, again, I'm all of 15, 16 years old. She called my school. She called my school while I was in class and she couldn't get me, of course, but she called the school and she left a note, you know, voice message with, with one of the secretaries in the school office that was then handed to me at the end of the school day saying, keep writing those poems. We need your young words. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Sonia Sanchez. Sonia Sanchez. The kiss yeah. of the poet. Absolutely. They just pass it on. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it, was, it was absolutely the thing that a young writer needs, you know. Yeah, well, you are now, you've now just taken on a job over at Cavicano. I have. The, uh, the, the, the program director. Mm -hmm. Well, shout out, first of all, to Toy Derricotte and Cornelius Eady, the founders, the founders of, of the Cave marvelous Cavicano. Yes. 25 years strong. Well, <laughs> that's hard to believe. Yeah. 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 So what does Cavicano mean to you? What, what place does it have in the black community? <clears throat> Cavicano... I've said this many times, I've written it down, but Cave Canem is really, um, in, in, in the simplest of terms, it's the, the current phase of a poetic project that started with the Harlem Renaissance, continued with the Black Arts Movement, and there are lots of other schools in there and movements in there. Um, Black Took Collective is one that comes to mind. Umbra. Umbra. Oh God, yeah, Lorenzo Thomas. And, yeah. Um, uh, there's there 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 are many, but we we just happen to be um, the latest phase of that. And I think the thing that makes us uh, different than some of those other movements is that we 
um, have been working for a long time to achieve Toy and Cornelius's vision that it really is an institution. Um, not only are there bricks and mortar, but there it's a community that people feel um, that they can go to. Um, and you know, one of the one of the downsides of becoming an institution is that people on the outside of that institution begin to uh, develop opinions about it, and and so there is this thing that part of my job is 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 to work very carefully to try and undo, which is that you know, Kavikanam isn't this ivy tower that or ivory tower that um, people can't access. It's accessible. We have lots of different programs, and so I think people are most familiar with the fellowship and they mm -hmm. want to you know become Kaveh Kanem fellows and that's that's definitely something that is achievable but we have lots of other programs and I'm working to expand our programs you know nationally so that poets everywhere at any stage you know um, can uh, access what we do and and be exposed to more kinds of poetry uh, learn more about the craft, develop their own poetry, and be in their communities, um, making sure that poetry is very much a part of their communal discourse. Well, sort of the flip the another type of poem that you write. I'm, I was really taken by, I don't like your cat. <laughs> um, and I know it's uh, to make this, to, to make this transition, you just have to be bold and go where people have never gone before. But uh, um, could you read us that poem? I find it absolutely hilarious. Sure. I don't like your cat. I don't like your cat. It's diluted wild or how it makes you cower in submission to its every whim its lack of what at first I thought was obedience, but now know to be willful disrespect of my disinterest in it, in photographs of it, in stories about it. Some I love have cats, and so I suffer the onslaught of glycoproteins and claw and baby-voiced, it's being friendly is all. Feral and decimating the rodent population, one once laid its spoils at my feet and I admired it. My childhood self even aided a kitten's paw with peroxide and gauze after the animal was nearly obliterated by a speed demon on our street. Admittedly, some have lovely coats, but your cat, black or sphinx or speckled and blue-eyed or piggish or Maine coon or Scottish fold or mongrel, plots murder under the bed when I visit. It's manipulative and freaks me with guilt, morphing into an emblem of your loneliness every time I look at it. Oh, gosh. Some that's a sonnet, Shakespearean sonnet, it feels like, <laughs> the way you do it. And yet here you are talking, uh, the turn, where uh, like the sonnet's turn, where do you talk about it? But your cat, <laughs> and then, of course, you know, you're thinking, you're talking about, I don't like your cat, you know, and this cat has done this. You're talking about an individual, but all of a sudden, it becomes, you, 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 you go into one of your it's lists. It's all cats. It's ah! all cats, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the only cats that are excluded from my hatred of cats are the big cats, you know, lions and tigers and snow leopards, especially, and the jaguars is especially dear to me. But these domesticated cats, I have no time for whatsoever. The, please, people, <laughs> uh, I, I'm, this, this ROM is going to get us more. We're going to get more emails on this one, more feedback from you. Know, I think this is possibly the first anti-cat poem 
Uh, and, and certainly the first person on our podcast. Sort of. <laughs> Come on. Well, someone has to do it. I mean, someone has to do it. Do you have you encountered cat people? You know they they are they are uh, zealous. Well, don't bring it back on me now. You're the one who's saying all this. I did. I said oh, it. Yeah. I stand by it. Um, I love that line. Admittedly, some have lovely coats. It's as if you're talking about some Hollywood starlet or something. <laughs> oh well, she does have a nice coat. I guess. You'd say, yeah, yeah. oh goodness, <laughs> some poetry for you today, folks. Dante Michaud, thank you for visiting us here. Thank and you so much for having me. Bread, love this wonderful poems coming up from these fantastic Pelham outside Camilla, someplace in southern Georgia. Um, thank you very much, Dante. Thank you. Late 2019 was my first trip to the homeland of Pablo Neruda, who gave us the name Poetry is Bread. I visited several of his houses. I even went to Rapa Nui, Easter Island, where Neruda wrote the poetry sequence, The Separate Rose. Which is the long way around to our guest today, from Chile, Rodrigo Rojas translator from Mapuche, who I last saw in Santiago with the aroma of tear gas in the air and another revolution on the streets. I participated in an impromptu poetry performance, or was it a party, Rodrigo? Um, I can't tell the difference. I think it was both, yeah, or at least the same. He's an MFA graduate from NYU, where he's on a Fulbright, author of several volumes in Spanish, translator, as I said, from the Mapuche language, indigenous Chile, Argentina, and he's now trying his hand at English. Please welcome Rodrigo Rojas. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, I'm glad you could accept it and visit us here in the largest studio in the world, <laughs> my, my back room. Um, listen, right at the beginning, what was it that uh, caused you to start thinking you were a poet? Was it? Tell me what poems or poem uh, gave you the inspiration to think, hey, maybe I can do that? Well, to be honest, it wasn't an actual poem. It, it was a series of novels about the sea, about the sea right um, to the east of, not to the west of Patagonia. His name is Francisco Coloane. He writes a lot about the whales and he's uh, whales and, and, and all the animals uh, on land and, and mm. the natives there. And that, those were my first like very passionate readings when I was young, I don't know, 12 to 14. And um, so it was images yes, that it struck was you. Images, and it was this this relationship with the sea, with nature, mm. and uh, I had the opportunity to visit that place, and um, I got a job as a teenager, and uh, I what worked, were you doing? I was working for a fishing company, and and then I worked as a as a cook mm. in this small fishing boat. I was a horrible cook and um, I didn't know anything about it, but the people from the fishing boat, they wanted me to work there because for them, it was really funny to see my mistakes. <laughs> and and I was so enthusiastic and I loved the sea. And I started a journal. And um, a couple of years after that, 
and when I read the journal, I realized that, in fact, I was writing poetry. So I came to poetry without looking for it, without knowing that I was inside of, of, of a poem. And uh, it was a means to trying to understand my surroundings. Mm. That's another line of Neruda's, of course. Poetry came in search of me, you know. Um, you know, Chile has so, such an incredible poetic tradition and so many uh, political poets as well. Um, extraordinary poets like Huidobro, uh, Neruda, Para, Gabriel Mistral, Raúl Zurita, one of our favorites. Yeah. And uh, I'm just wondering, it reminds me of the New Yorican poets here, New Yorican Poets Cafe, and poets like Pedro Pietri, Tito Laviera, Sandra Maria Davis, Miguel Pinheiro, and Algarin, so many others. You know, what do you think it is that creates these pockets of poetry or, you know, or a poetic tradition that seems to, like, overflow the language from the poet to the people? I really, I really don't have an accurate answer, but I have an experience relating to that. I can understand what happens when um, in a certain country or a certain community there are certain troubles and there is certain anguish and suddenly uh, words begin to have a different effect and that effect is not related directly to intelligence or directed towards a aesthetic experience, those words begin to thread different levels of experience and different levels of imagination. And also they bring about a new uh, perspective of the future. And if that is not political, I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Have you got a poem that you can uh, give us? I, uh, it was supposed to be a translation issue. So if you can read a poem in Spanish and, and English, that you think? I will. Okay. I will. And I've got this one. Her name is Elvira Hernandez. And uh, she belongs to the same generation as the poet Raul Zurita, who you have just mentioned. She's a very, very discreet and quiet poet. Uh, she must be turning 70 very soon. And uh, she published her first book called La Bandera de Chile, Chilean flag, in 1982. Uh, that book was uh, could not come out because it was 1982. That was uh, uh, in the middle of the dictatorship. Yeah. The secret police got word of this book and because she mentioned the Chilean flag, so the uh, dictators are tend to be very nationalistic and they tend to control the symbolism around the these uh, national emblems. And that was her project, to take this back. And, well, that book was never came out of the press, and somehow she managed to type this thing and then... And, and, and reproduce it not in photocopies. I can remember that the name of that um, that very low cost reproduction, which with a jelly uh, with mimeograph. Oh, mimeograph. Yeah, that's a means a Sami's dot means of, of distribution here in the U.S. as well. Yeah, yeah. whole generation. Of so poems. when I read this poem, 
it, I was still a teenager. It, it, Pinochet was still in power, mm. and I had in my hands like this, this copy. This, this, it's so full of 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 grit and history. It's so difficult to read, and that made the a poem, sacred text, yeah, so believable. Yeah, and when I came back to this poem, I was living here in the in New York, and I was part of this the EMFA and NYU. So I translated it uh, in order to share it with my friends. And it was the beginning of, of, the, of the Iraq war. It was right after 9-11. George and, Bush, George W. Bush, your president. Yes, yes, George W. Bush. And I saw the same phenomenon around the, the flag. I understand what happened here. Well, I lived it the, after 9-11. And I saw every house with a flag, but I could read that the same symbol meant so many different things. Mm -hmm. Some people were proud, some people were sad, but many were hiding behind the flag because they were scared of their own neighbors too. And that reminded me of that experience. So that's when I translated this poem and instead of saying the Chilean flag, I translated it's a long poem, I'll read just a little bit. I translate it as the flag of the nation. So whichever nation right. uh, <laughs> feels <laughs> close to this poem, they can, you know, replace Chile but by, uh, you know, the name of their country. <laughs> okay, so goes like this. No se dedica uno la bandera de Chile. Se entrega a cualquiera que la sepa tomar, la toma de la bandera. Nadie ha dicho una palabra sobre la bandera de Chile en el porte, en la tela, en todo su desierto cuadrilongo. No la han nombrado la bandera de Chile ausente. La bandera de Chile no dice nada sobre sí misma. Se lee en su espejo de bolsillo redondo, Espejea retardada en el tiempo como un eco. Hay muchos vidrios rotos, trizados como las líneas de una mano abierta. Se lee en búsqueda de piedras para sus ganas. The flag of this nation is not dedicated to a single person, but given just to anyone who's able to learn how to snatch it the seizing of La Bandera. No one has said a word on the flag, on its size, on the fabric, in all its square lorry desert. It hasn't been mentioned. The flag of the nation is absent. The flag doesn't say a thing about itself. It reads itself in a round pocket mirror mirroring time like a retarded echo or piles of broken glass splintered like the lines of an open hand it reads itself in search of stones to fulfill its desires unto the flag a fatherly orient ignorance no matter what bitch gave birth to her Honors are given to her that multiply the infallible mechanisms, the unnoticed flag there. Hundred, two hundred, nine hundred. 
In no one has the territory of its own empty lots. In no one has the fossil of its communal pot. In no one, in no one, in no one, until it's enough of colors and threads. No one has, one has not, no one has, one has not, none are. The national flag is torn into little frags for children to cheer. Oh. You know, she's this, very discreet and quiet lady and she has like this atomic thing bubbling in her absolutely yeah that's you know i mean it's so great to say what do dictators do well they steal the symbols turn the symbols into themselves and it's the poet's job to demystify the symbols to reinvent them as their origins once the you know they get a passage now you say you've changed the the title of this poem though do you how do you have the liberty to go ahead and change the title of a poem doesn't the, the poet aren't they in charge here who are you well i had a long chat with her oh okay <laughs> but that changes and i think that's really an important issue if the poet is alive you know, to not be in touch with the poet while you're doing the translation, I think, is to, is to you know, miss the boat. You know? Yeah. I had a, a chat with her after translating it. Because okay. if I would have asked permission, she would have said no. I would have said no, too. But then I came up with this poem, and I sent it to her. And she said, okay, come and have, you know, a cup of tea with me. We went from tea to wine, and we uh, with a prolonged conversation, and she made me read it to her. Mm-hmm. Because some lines, I expanded them with repetition in order to uh, replace certain local themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when a footnote was needed, I replaced it with with another kind of... I don't know, compensation in English language. Okay. Sometimes it was alliteration, some more, sometimes it was repetition. And I, you know, underlined these things and we talked each one through. And some of them she didn't like, I took them out and some of them she did. And one thing she said, you know, whenever you read this poem, feel free to change it while you're reading it because your version is more performative than than my version in Spanish. Yes, and I, I, you know, and you get that when you can add a repetition. Now that is a that's a, that's orality on the hoof. Repetition, you know, it's how you how it, it's repetition actually that passes a poem along to another person, as well as the call and response, which is is as a poetic technique, ancient ancient oral technique, um, and and so. You do that to have permit. I think every all poets should have permission to change any poem. Now, I don't know if you want to change Shakespeare, you know, but maybe you don't have permission to change other people's poems, but you do for me. But you certainly have to permission to change your own poems as you read them because the audience wants to hear the way you're relating to them right now. To be honest, Bob, I think that we, I agree with you, but I think that we should start with Shakespeare. Shakespeare is not holy. And if there's anyone who taught us to to steal and change things, is Shakespeare. Yeah. You know, well, Hamlet so. is this great play, but it, 
that play was written by somebody else before him. In fact, it was, you know, it was staged a year before by his competitors. And, you know, the, the thing is that when you're living next to a Shakespeare, it's terrible because you write something well, very good, and he comes, he steals it from you, and he makes it better. <laughs> like, I don't know, for example, Caetano Veloso, you know, mm -hmm. he takes, you know, he takes songs from all over the world and he turns them all into this soft, mellow Cayetano Veloso. Walking on oh, the Brazilian beaches. Yeah, come on. And you hear like Nirvana in Cayetano's voice and you say, oh my God. So, you know, that's that's great. Yeah. It's great. So that's, that's what I agree with you, but we shouldn't okay, even respect you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. I get, okay, you win the prize. You're wearing the hat and you look like it, you know. Um, let's see, where, where can we go from here? We, we talk about the orality. Let's talk about the Mapuche traditions, okay? Which uh, are grounded in yeah. orality. Now, how did you get involved with the Mapuche poetry? Okay, so, yes, one clarification. I do translations, and I have studied uh, the Mapuche language, but... I would never call myself a translator directly from Mapuche because one thing that is happening now in Chile is that these Mapuche people who have, I don't know, half a million of them are Mapuche speakers or bilingual speakers. They are reclaiming mm -hmm. their position in culture. And uh, the Mapuche that I learned was thanks to the poet Leonel Lienlaf, he uh, did, did these workshops called um, I don't know, Mapuche Worldview. And uh, he placed a, in, in the center of the table, like a bread to be shared, yeah. his kimun, which is his knowledge. And I learned from him. And that allows me to use skillfully certain dictionaries and the phone because I can call other friends and understand certain variations. And uh, I bring those poems into English. But um, many of these Mapuche poets are approaching uh, the, the task of the self-translation. So what I've done is that I have studied them as translators of their own work. Okay. And I have read into that activity a strategy of a profound political meaning. In a summary, they take the language that has been imposed, mm. they learn it, they extract what they need, and then they use that strength against the very same language that, wow. that so for example, you have wonderful uh, Mapuche poets who have taken Neruda and translated it into Mapuche, mm -hmm. transforming his poetry. Like we were talking about Shakespeare now, well, they've done it with Neruda. So they have dressed Neruda as a Mapuche. So, what I do is that I translate certain poems in order to share them with my poet friends. Mm 
No. So yes. I'm spreading or pollinizing well, this. Yeah, it's pollinating. Yeah, but it's, you, it's exactly, you know, it's what the oral tradition is. It's what Mapuche, where the yeah. poems came from, was was being spoken to around the yes. fire at night or on the ayahuasca or whatever is going on. And Cecilia Vicuña has, uh, is the first one that, that, you know, pushed this agenda into English. And all I did is just, just follow her thread who anyone who knows Cecilia uh, Vicuñas. Yeah, I was going to say they're her kipas, you, yes, know, yes. you know, it's a, it's a pun on the way that she makes her art with a thread. Now, so the, the, um, the Mapuche translations, can you read Mapuche? Yeah. Can we hear it from you? Would you feel comfortable with that? Look, I can read Mapuche, but to be honest, um, I wouldn't like to do it now because there is this, no, I don't want to take up mm -hmm. the space that they're building for themselves. Okay. okay? So um, I called Lionel and I asked him to send me uh, an, an audio file with him reading his own text. But unfortunately, his mother has just died. So I didn't want to insist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So well, he's, but, yeah. but I have another version of another poet. His name is Jaime Buenun. And Jaime, um, he comes from a family in which they were forced to forget their language. So uh, through formal Western education, he came in contact with poetry. And while writing poetry, he realized that certain things, certain words, he could only say them in Mapuche. Not because he didn't know the Spanish word for it, but he needed the construction of syntax of the worldview of Mapuche. So he writes in a Spanish that seems extracted from the 17th century, which is the time in which the Mapuches and the Spaniards clashed. So even though he doesn't write in Mapuche, his Spanish calls upon that void of, of violence, mm. which made him and his family forget that, that, that tongue. So he has a huge project that started in Chile. Now it's, it's around the world with other native poets who have been deprived of their language. So he does these beautiful illuminated anthologies. And he refers by illumination to that light and also to the mm -hmm. shadow, yeah. which comes in that, you know, very strange threshold in which you're forced to speak in the language that has oppressed you and your people for generations and turn that violence into, uh, into poetry. So let me read you this, this thing. Let's it, hear this thing. Okay. So this, this poem is called ceremony of love. Ceremony of love. Last night trees loved each other like Indians. Manio, Ulmo, Pijin, and Waye, Tineo, and Linge, node to node, they loved as great lovers do. Peumos, bronzed, barked, coiwes, muched, kissed their roots, tufts, and sprouts, until love was aroused in birds already lulled by feathers of their very own twittering love. 
the same way filthy winkas, like lovers, buried themselves and the negro waters, open their springs to bring light, sip by sip alone, naming, calling out gentle and beautiful waters, but oh, we were raped. Our river waters spilled my Ken River moaning, bloomed in labor, and yet joyous lady streams that crossed the hills and mountains like hares. And doves of the same love soon gathered under one yoke the green wellspring of Inayao, the wild honey Waikipan, swift eye Yanakilef, thrush breasts Rekeleo, the Kiyai Wilitraro, blackbird hair, the young beech trees Pailamanke, which she love last night they made love again in a plain negro thicket under threshed perpetually indian skies like mountains they made love like stallion waters like flaming and chimalen flowers in a fragrant dawn they loved sweetening their yeast like over flowing vessels of mudai liquor so that strangeness wow. of, of these words that they sound so foreign, they are just as foreign in Spanish. And, and these Mapuche words, he's mixing name places, he's mixing objects of, of the natural world with family names. Oh. So what, what, which family names? Oh, for or, or is it just to indicate all people through a last name to, to bring the bring the people into the poem? He's bringing people into the poem, but specific, he's all, not specific. Yeah. Just, yes, okay. Yes. Yeah, Yanakilef, for example. Okay, so he's saying swift eye Yanakilef, which is you know the the physical characteristic of that family, but. Oh. He's saying also that the Yanakilef family cannot be distinguished from the river, from the tree, from the stone. Mm. There is no boundary between human and their natural surroundings. Beautiful. Beautiful. And, 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 and I've never heard of, of that, you know, of that, what do you call it? Technique, strategy, you can't, there's no word for it. But consciousness, consciousness is the word I'm, I'm searching for, where the, the human takes their place with their name the same way that the river does and the same way the plants do and the same way that the jaguar does. And everybody is living in, in balance. Everybody is in balance. Yes, and that is, uh, this is an erosion of the notion of property. Because one of the things one of the political projects that 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 failed um, with the resistance of of the Mapuche is the notion of owning the land, because what they now confront uh, that you know the, the the confrontation with the state is that you know you are forcing us to live under a productive. A paradigm and the productive paradigm means that your relationship with with the earth with the soil is to produce and that's the only way to show that you are a responsible owner and we understand that you cannot own something that 
is undistinguishable from people, from other uh, living beings. And to be productive in that sense means to let nature do what nature does best. And that's all in that poem. That's, uh, uh, well, we can feel it now. We can feel it. But how it gets started with the actual dropping in of the Mapuche words that just make us stop and what did he, was that part, is it Spanish or, you know, all of that goes on, especially when we hear it in, in English, especially, I think probably more with people around who live with the Mapuche down in Chile. And he uses the word Indian and the word Negro. Okay. Because he's, he's taking those words which are used as insults and he transforms them into the, the, into the poem in which they sound to your ear as insult, and yet they participate in a ceremony of love. Wow. Okay, I'm glad you broached that because I was thinking, hey, am I going to bring this up that you can't say Negro anymore? You know, um, outdated, old-fashioned, and an insult. Indian, I don't know. I know a lot of Indians who call themselves Indians, but we'll call them indigenous. We'll call them uh, Native Americans or Native yeah. wherever we are. Whatever, but he you know. chooses perf wow. purposely okay. those words. All right. He okay. wants that negative energy transformed in the poem. It's, it's explosive. Powerful. Yes, yeah. explosive. Explosive indeed. You know. Um, so... No, tr the translations of the Mapuche occur in a conversation like this after the poem is read, I would yeah. assume. And that's, that's what's important about this podcast is that we're able to uh, uh, sort of dig into the poem and find out how, how this consciousness results in a kind of aesthetic, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, it's, I, you know, I'm more familiar with, like, with Welsh, you know, where you have poets like Gerard Manley Hopkins and Dylan mm -hmm. Thomas who used Welsh um, formal uh, poetic devices, you know, the Kenhaneth, to, to drive the rhythms of the poems. But this is different. This is, I like it that you said um, they're forced to forget. I've never heard that used before. I've, I've heard they were not allowed to speak their language, you know, and people having to wear um, a, ca a dunce cap or some kind of a, a, a plaque around their necks when they couldn't, when they weren't allowed to speak the language, but they did. But you say forced to forget. Could you tell us what does that? Well, because one thing is that image that you have just placed in our minds, you know, the dunce cap, etc., and that happens in one generation. But the effect of that is that you become ashamed of your own culture. And that's the true effect of that violence. So what you inherit to the next generation is that, that shame. So the, the triumph of the colonial project has to do with people who are ashamed of being themselves. And they are forced into that position. And the result is in the realms of memory. So that's why I'm. I, that's why I say they are forced to forget, mm. because it's forgetfulness. Not because I don't know, it's, you forgot. <laughs> like yeah. it happens to me with the keys in the morning. Right. It's not. Right. It's right. not that. It's the result of a long-winded project, political project, 
through which a national state is built. And it's built by, not only by hiding a language, but by having a whole part of its population afraid to be themselves. They think of themselves as not not intelligent, not capable, mm. that they have a certain secret that they must expunge from their bodies, even like the, you know, the color of their hair, the color of the of, of right, the skin, right. everything is 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 there. Yeah. And the total triumph is within the the language because then you make them um I don't know, you make them ashamed even of their worldview, their imagination, their dreams. You take away their identity. Yeah. to take away a language. The Chilean government is, is finally, I understand, beginning to support some Mapuche in schools. Is that really, is that happening? Yes, it's a project that has begun. Uh, they are uh, supporting uh, multicultural medicine and some projects with bilingual education, but it's not enough. It, yeah, yeah. To this moment, it's just uh, makeup and, and, uh, we have in our hands a problem that has not been solved. And um, we've had right-wing, left-wing, center governments that have been blind and, and, and very clumsy with this, uh, with, this, w with this problem. And one of the reasons is that uh, the Mapuche have not truly participated in, in this process. Mm. And that is because the Mapuche have also another type of time and another type of organization that the Western mindset cannot stand that. Like, for example, okay, tell me, who is your leader? Tell him to come and speak to us. And they answer, well, we'll send you a leader, but we have so many. We have so many. And okay, so we have one month to solve this. And they say, well, I don't know, we haven't solved this in 500 years. Like, how about if we take another 500 to talk about this? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, incredible. So, so steeped in the Mapuche uh, culture, and yet here you are in New York, and having gone to NYU and studied the American poets, what drew you to uh, to, to to America? This this hotbed of, uh, of antipathy and violence. Well, I don't know. I've I've had a, a life uh, in a sense that uh, well, my life has been a mess, a mosaic. Okay, and the, the Mapuche is just one piece, a very cold and shining piece of that mosaic. And uh, my relationship with the English language also, and my relationship with my Spanish, it's also another piece of this mosaic. I have a very fractured identity. And I think that uh, New York is one of the places in the world in which uh, a fractured identity is an asset. And that's where I came. And yes, it's filled with violence and, and has a, a very rich tradition uh, that can be questioned. And uh, I found that my own um, interests and my own insolence could mm -hmm. be valued here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's, that's where I am. So I don't even know where I'm, where, 
where I'm really standing. I, I write in Spanish and I love my, my, all my books are in Spanish, but I also write in English. I know that's what I was going to ask you about the exercises in infidelity, you call them. It doesn't sound like you're very faithful to any language to me, but yeah. um, in, in Spanish is mother tongue for you. Do you have one of those poems in English that you yes, can read? Yes, I, I have. I have. Look, the, when the pandemic started, friends from NYU um, got together and did this workshop through Zoom. And since, I don't know, we were together in the MFA 20 years ago, all of them were living in different cities, even in different countries. And so we got through this pandemic by writing every Saturday. And, and if I wanted to participate, of course, I had to write again in English, and it was a great exercise for me. So I will read you this, this poem that, you know, like every poem in this collection is about a different kind of translation. It's, in, their poems are very aware of the difference or transporting or trying to cross a threshold. And um, sometimes it's a linguistic or in many times it's just cultural. And this is about an activity that I really love. Uh, I think by drawing. That's, I've always done that. I, it you know, gives me another pacing for my ideas. I'm a very anxious person. So when I draw, I become treatable. And, and when I draw, I understand uh, the flowing of ideas, also the hierarchy of ideas, but a hierarchy that responds not to logic, but responds to the aesthetic understanding of what I'm looking at. And this is a poem about that. It's called Fine, Soluble, and Lightfast. It's Indian, it's English, West Indian in Dutch, but in German, French, and Spanish, it's Chinese ink, solid black, thick water, dark, no gloss, but still a journey. I opened a 16-ounce bottle, poured some of the ink into a glass bowl, dipped a number eight flat brush until it became heavy. The night is approaching. A brush soaked in black is necessary. The hairs must bend and slightly spread over the white of the paper. The outline of the garden is first, not the sky. The proximity of night means that darkness will rise in between the plants. It's your everyday shadow, but swelling. The brush loaded will leave a wide stroke with some bubbles expanding the same way shadows flood into each other, a mass deep enough to rise from the ground. Thirteen minutes ago, the sunset, red afterglows are dissolved, this nectary blue sky, uneven, concave, unlit, is the source of all contrasts. Nothing falls through that edge, the line of night closing in. The flat brush, allows in one movement to do the spines, little teeth aligned at the side of fleshy leaves against the horizon. They could be a cuff of a sperm whale, its lower jaw out of the water with its first open vowel. One brush stroke, one Indian stroke, one Chinese solid black ink, 
the paper and its tide is oblivious to the weight of the exotic in its name. But the brush dips into all of that as it paints on from wet soil to the spiky tips. Night folds in broiled blue, darkness swelling from the ground, the unconfessed imagination, uncivilized mirrors subdued in 16-ounce bottle made in the Netherlands. <laughs> bravo, bravo. A, a poem that uh, paints, there is. This is the, uh, the, the poem itself is drawing itself. You uh, have described as only a poet can everything from filling up a brush with, uh, with India ink or Chinese ink, uh, making that brush stroke, and at the same time, Telling us a sunset. Come on, man. That's a fool's errand there to tell to tell us how a sunset goes down and when we're supposed to see it. Of course, we do through your words. Beautiful, incredible poem. I and mean, it also has that the real political edge. The way you have the the countries at the beginning and starting with Indian and then going to West Indian and relaxing that word, ending up back in the Netherlands where we, uh, you know, where the colonization of of so much of this of that part of the world happened. Um, bravo. And, and your English attempt sounds like it is uh, indeed kind of uh, unfaithful. <laughs> that was Exercises in Infidelity, one of the poems from that series. One of the other things I've, I've heard about you is that you can actually translate, or at Jaguar um, could... Could perhaps we hear some of your Jaguar translations? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I've been working on this Jaguar translation, and I will try to render uh, one line of, of a Jaguar poem. And uh, the audience should, um, should be aware that uh, this line has some internal rhymes. So it starts something like this. <laughs> That's as far as beautiful, I, beautiful, I beautiful now. translation. I, I have you, but I, I've heard that you've translated that into dolphin speak. Yes, yes, I'm starting with dolphin speak, and um, I will eventually get to human language. But dolphin, you know, they are so empathic, so it's a perfect middle language. You know, see, because a dolphin would express that poetry line like this. There are some variations to that, depending on you know what kind of dolphin. But that's the basic. Part. Can hardly wait until you translate the Mapuche into Jaguar and dolphin. <laughs> well, but thank you, Rodrigo, for visiting the Bowery Studio all the way from Santiago, Chile. Safe travels to you. I'm Bob Holman, and thank you for listening to Poetry Is Bread. Subscribe to our podcast to get notifications of new episodes, or check us out at BoweryPoetry.com podcast is co-produced by Ram Devanini and Flavia Roja with Rataplax. This podcast series is funded by the Citizen Diplomacy Action Fund, which is sponsored by the U.S. Department of State, can you believe it, with funding provided by the U.S. government 
and implemented by Global Ties U.S. in partnership with the Office of Alumni Affairs in the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. Additional support from New York State Council on the Arts, Governor of New York State, and the New York State Legislature. Okay, see ya. See you.